Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from the gospel according to John chapter 14, verses 1 through 10. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Have you ever known someone who thinks really highly of themselves? Uh, The type that cannot do wrong, and they really want you to know about it. The type that is constantly reminding you of how great they are, the big things that are going to do, and how you really ought to pay attention to everything that they say. Now, it's usually uh, the problem, what's interesting about that kind of person, is that most often the problem is that they're not nearly as special as they claim to be. They are not as smart or as accomplished or as wise uh, as they think they are. And so they become these walking contradictions because they assume themselves great, but in the end, they are just as fragile, limited, and superficial as the rest of us. And on top of that, when one thinks about such people, the first thought is not to think, wow, that person is so kind and so humble and so generous and self-giving. Instead, we usually think of uh, adjectives like arrogant and self-righteous and hypocritical, right? Those often come to mind. But what might it look like for someone to claim greatness, believe themselves to be matchless, make it their mission to let everybody know about it, but at the same time also be one who isn't thought of as being arrogant or self-righteous, but rather one who is full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What if this person, though claiming to be superior was also known for self-giving love. That would be a really special kind of person, right? Now, of course, I can, I can imagine that you know where I'm going with this, but Jesus Christ is a man who claimed some really extraordinary things about himself. The most central of those claims being his superiority. And one of the most aggressive claims that Jesus has ever made in all of Scripture that we see is found in verse 6, where he says, I am the way the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. That statement sounds like one of the most arrogant, self-absorbed statements 
in all of literature. And yet arrogance and hypocrisy are not the adjectives that we tend to use for Jesus. Why is that? Well, today we continue our series, The Resurrection. We are centering Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul claims that if the resurrection of Jesus did not take place, then the Christian faith is useless, it's futile, and Christians ought to be the most pitied among everyone. But if the resurrection did happen, now we have to deeply wrestle with what the Bible has to say on a host of different issues. Now, over the course of the series, we're going to consider how the resurrection informs the Christian understanding of uh, some of life's most pressing questions and issues for us today. We're going to see how the resurrection shapes our understanding of uh, things like sexism, racism, and bigotry. We're going to look at that next week. Uh, the following week, we're going to take a look at how does the resurrection help us understand unchristlike Christians? How does the Bible and uh, the resurrection help us understand sex and sexuality and so many other different topics we're going to hit on over the course of the series? But today... As we come off of Easter last week, we consider one of the most central claims of Christianity, as well as one of the central claims of Jesus himself, and that claim is, no one comes to the Father except through him, that there is one way to God. And I want to take a look at uh, that idea and why it matters, why it's one, it ought to be one of the most pressing issues of the day, by looking at Jesus' statements in Verse 6. And what I want to do, I want to see what Jesus means when he says, I am, what he means when he says, the way and the truth, and what he means when he says, the life. Okay? So, first, what does Jesus mean when he says, I am? Uh, we first have to start with that, that, those two words. Now, for most of us, we, we read those two words and we don't really think uh, that much about them as they just seem like a simple preface statement about describing oneself. But this is not the case at all for how Jesus uses them. When Jesus uses, uses the words, I am, they contain the identity itself. Let me explain to you what I mean. So for those to whom Jesus is speaking in this passage, I am came with great significance. See, back in Exodus 3, when God comes to Moses in the burning bush, maybe you know this story, Moses is about to go to the Egyptians to set his people free. And at the burning bush, God, or Moses asks God, what should I call you when people ask? What is your name? And do you know what God's answer was? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And God goes on to tell Moses to say, this is what you should say. Say, I am has sent me to you. Now pin that for a second. Now with that in mind, the Gospel of John, Jesus, within the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven, at least seven different statements, seven different I am statements. For example, he says, I am the bread of life, John 6. I am the light of the world, John 8. I am the good shepherd, John 10. But then you have this really uh, interesting interaction back in John 8 between Jesus and the religious leaders. They're pressing him about who he claims to be. And I want to read for you that interaction. It's brief. Let me read it for you. It says this, Jesus replied, If I glory myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. 
If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Goes on. You are yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Then Jesus says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Catch this. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. Now, why such a violent reaction? It's because they knew exactly what he was claiming. He had just claimed himself to be I am, the eternal one. See, when Moses went to liberate God's people, he said, I am sent me. But now here you have Jesus who has come to liberate God's people, not saying I am sent me, but rather I am. Jesus here is claiming to be God. And this, of course, is a big claim. It's a claim that really shapes all other claims, doesn't it? (laughs) I mean, that claim that should really give us pause as to whether or not we consider the person who's saying such things as someone worthy of our consideration and validation, because that's not a normal claim. Even the most arrogant and self-absorbed and self-righteous, confident people don't claim to be God. When someone claims to be God, they are usually a cult leader or mentally unstable, I mean, there's a classic apologetic argument that was made popular by uh, C.S. Lewis, and it's been refined by scholars since then. But essentially, the argument goes like this, that Jesus is either, either a legend, he's a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. He's got to be one of the four. I mean, and as the argument goes, uh, it could be essentially said that given all of the extraordinary things that Jesus has claimed, the first could be that he's just a legend. You know, in, in some sense, there was no real Jesus who claimed to be such things, and so he's just a myth, a legend. However, if you remember what we talked about last week, the Gospels are not written as myths and legends. Scholars of antiquity recognize that these books are historical narratives, and what that means then is that the historical Jesus made these statements. Now, we can decide how we want to believe them, but he made these statements, so he's no legend. But then that leaves us with Jesus either being a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. Because here's here's how this would play out. If he was not God, but believed himself to be God, he'd be a lunatic. Or maybe he knew that he was not God, but he claimed to be God in order to gain a following, in which case he would be a liar. Or the final option, of course, is that he believed himself to be God because he actually was the Lord. He actually was, I am. Now, most world religions hold Jesus to be something of esteem, some exemplar to follow, uh, someone from whom we can learn morality and self-love. But here's the problem with seeing Jesus as just this good figure of morality or teaching, is that it is completely inconsistent with what Jesus said about himself. If Jesus simply taught about God or simply lived a moral life or gave good teachings about morality, fine. But he refuses to allow you to confidently hold a position like that. Jesus is backing us into a corner saying, you have no choice but to consider me a fairy tale 
a lunatic, a liar, or God. Now, what's interesting is, of course, Jesus makes this big grand statement. He says, I am. He's claiming to be God. But then he pushes even further beyond just that. And now he begins to explain a bit more of what he is and what he means by being God. And he does so by looking, of course, in the, uh, we'll see that by looking at the next statements that he made. He says, I am the way and the truth. Now, what does he mean by way and the truth? You know, this is uh, one of the more controversial ideas, I think, for us today in our, our pluralistic society where there's a, a plethora of different belief systems and things that uh, people pursue as true. And I think, what's interesting, I do think most people can handle Christians claiming Jesus to be God as long as that idea is held as a personal one. That uh, is a personal one, and then there, there ought to then be room for the belief in many other gods. Right? The idea that one should claim that there really is only one true God ought to just be this kind of privatized thing that you should not speak about. But Jesus, if he is the only God, if he is God, therefore the only way and the only truth, that does tend to go against our modern sensibilities of inclusivity, doesn't it? I mean, for someone to claim to be something like this, to be God, to be the way, to be the truth, it really, for many of us, uh, is kind of a repugnant idea in modern day society. It's so exclusive, the idea that anyone can claim to know the way or hold the truth is often rejected as this backward, closed-minded, or even bigoted perspective. And what's interesting is I actually don't think that's completely wrong. It very much can be, right? When someone claims to know truth and is unwilling to listen to anyone else, that can actually, at times, create some problems. But here's what's interesting, is that many today who even get very uncomfortable with these kinds of exclusive claims often don't realize how exclusive they are actually being by holding that belief that all things should be inclusive. And here's what I mean by that. All of us have an idea of what we believe to be right and true, every single one of us. And whether you realize it or not, even the most you know, progressive ideas of inclusivity are actually in exclusive in nature, so, for example, the assertion that, you know, all religions lead to the same God is actually an exclusive claim about religion that tends to exclude anyone who disagrees. So, if we were to say, if one were to say, all roads lead to the same God, is that not an exclusive claim about the nature of religion, the nature of spirituality? And so now if someone comes along and says, oh, I disagree, well, now you've, you've been excluded from the understanding of this inclusive thing. It's kind of an ironic reality. Inclusive beliefs across the board, they really are exclusive claims. So here's why I'm drawing all this out. I draw all this out because none of us are truly inclusive. Even the most progressive among us, you have exclusive beliefs about what you believe to be true. And so the question is not whether or not we're inclusive or exclusive. We are all exclusive. Here's the question we need to wrestle with. Is, does our foundation for truth, is it firm? Is it a firm foundation on which we build our lives and our understanding of truth? 
All of us have exclusive claims. All of us have foundations at the bottom of those exclusive claims. And so what I want us to consider is, what is the foundation for your exclusive understanding of what is right, good, and true in the world? Because it's only when we acknowledge that we all have exclusive beliefs that we can then have a conversation about what the best foundations for those beliefs are. And now I, d- I really don't have, of course, time to critique and assess every foundation that exists out in, the, out in the world. There are far too many religions and philosophies and perspectives. And I want to, of course, also respect those who have a different foundation than I do. I will say this. Um, we were going we're gonna to get to this later on in the series, but Christians would actually be wise to learn from a variety of different perspectives. Uh, we want to, th- we'll be again addressing, uh, addressing this later in the series. There's a, there's a reformed doctrine called the, uh, the Doctrine of Common Grace that essentially asserts that Christians can interact and learn from an endless number of philosophies and perspectives without relinquishing their convictions. Um, we'll get to that one day, so we'll, we'll get there at one point. But for now... What I want us to not is not assess every perspective, but to say, what is our foundation and how firm and secure is that foundation? Because here, Jesus does not claim to know the way, nor does he claim to know the truth. He's not like other religious founders or teachers, all of whom claimed to have uh, had some kind of enlightenment, some kind of insight where now they say, I have found the way to heaven or nirvana or happiness or whatever. So Jesus isn't like those other uh, religious leaders who point to the way. He's also not like the modern idealists or motivationalists or therapists or influencers who point you to a, a sense of inner self to discover what truth is. Jesus is never pointing, pointing you to the way or to truth or to seek out something to discover the truth. Instead, Jesus here is saying, I am the way. I am the truth. I'm not pointing you somewhere else. I am truth. So again, let's not miss what we've already seen in this passage, that Jesus is making this extremely confronting statement about being God, and then he makes a really confronting statement about being the only way, about being truth. And here's the bottom line. He's either a lunatic, completely mentally unstable. He knows this to be true, that, uh, to be not true, and so that for, therefore he's a liar, or he is who he says he is. But the question, though, is how do we assess if that's the case? And that's where I want to bring now to the resurrection. Remember, our series is on the resurrection because we need something to assess that foundation. Right? We believe all things that Christians believe is based on Jesus' claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so how do we assess that, whether or not it's true? See, the difference between many other people that claim greatness is often they may claim greatness, but in the end, we know that they are not actually greater, right? In their being is who they are. They're not actually greater. But if Jesus is truly God, if he truly is the way, if he truly is uh, truth, then his claims of superiority cannot, they must be rooted in something where he proves that he is actually greater. Where he proves that he is who he says he is. And that's what brings us finally to 
his statements on being the life. In John 11, Jesus, he's uh, at the burial of his friend Lazarus. Uh, And when he arrives, he finds uh, the devastated sisters of Lazarus, uh, Mary and Martha. Of course, they are pained at their brother's death, but they're also... They also believe that Jesus could actually have healed their brother, uh, which leads me to this portion of an interaction that they had that I want to quickly read to you. But just picture that scene, Jesus arriving, many people devastated. Just what it says. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went down to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by helping or by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Here's what's interesting about that interaction. He is telling her that her brother will rise again. And he's also telling her that everyone who trusts in him, though they might die, will never die. Now again, these are either the ramblings of a lunatic, the callous manipulation of a liar, or it's a promise of God. And the way he proves that it's not ramblings and it's not a lie is to demonstrate his power over death. This is what it means for him to be the resurrection and the life. The resurrection of Jesus is the vindication of all that he's claimed. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is so emphatic that if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, our faith is useless, it's futile. If the literal resurrection of Jesus did not happen, we should not care what Jesus did or said. In fact, without the resurrection, Jesus is the world's most effective manipulator. But if it did happen, and it did happen, Jesus proves that he is truly life. Through his death and his resurrection, he proves his authority and victory over death and all of its effects. And the reason why he says that those who trust in him will never die is that the life that he has through his resurrection power is the same life that is given to those who believe. This is why Christians point to Jesus as the only way because he is God, the way, the truth, And the life, he has proven it. He has proven to be who he says he is through his resurrection. Now let me end like this. You know, again, if you remember, we said that our goal in this series is to consider how the resurrection shapes our understanding of life's most pressing questions and issues. And last week, we considered how uh, we can trust that the resurrection of Jesus actually did take place. And as a result of that, we can trust that his word is true. However, today, what I need us to wrestle with is not just whether or not the resurrection took place, but to rather consider the extent to which our understanding of what is true is foundationally as secure as the resurrection of Jesus. 
You know, many other world religions, they offer valuable insights and philosophies about life. But I wonder, is their basis for truth as significant as Jesus claiming to be God, dying and rising again to prove his claim was true? You know, many conceptions of truth rest in today in our internal sense of what is true for me. What is true for me is uh, also what is most meaningful to me. But I wonder, the things that we discover within ourselves about what is true, are those things firm and secure? Like Jesus claiming to be God, dying and rising again in order to prove that it is true. There's so many alternatives to understanding truth. But all of them are almost always rooted in things like performance in order to be good enough, to be accepted enough, to be accomplished enough, or they're rooted in pursuits of self-discovery that often leave us wanting more, lost, more lost than we were even before, or they're rooted in attempts at a fulfillment in life as we discover in our, in our series uh, in Ecclesiastes, we pursue meaning and purpose in life only to find that the things that we spend most time pursuing leave us with nothing because they will all one day pass away. But see, here, Jesus is offering us something greater. He's offering us truth. He's offering us himself. He's offering us the way, for he is the way. He's offering us life, resurrection life. That is a firm foundation on which we can build our lives. That is a firm foundation on which we can build truth. If the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, fine. None of this matters. He was just a lunatic. He was just a liar. And we can move on with our lives. But if he did rise from the dead, he is the one who is saying to you, come to me and I will give you life. And so there's just two groups of people I want to, I want to speak to quickly. If you are not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. But I encourage you to consider what it means to accept Jesus, not as some, some person who, you know, um, claimed, to be, claimed to be God and maybe taught some good things and has these kinds of exclusive claims. Receive him as life. Receive him as the one who is truth. If you're a Christian here today, I would encourage you to consider the extent to which you rest in that life that has already been given to you, already been accomplished for you. And do you know and do you experience that sense of being loved, that security that comes, and knowing that Christ has accomplished such things for you, no matter what life might bring, you can be safe and secure. You have a firm foundation. Do you rest in that truth? Ultimately, I pray that we all end up finding rest in the, in the reality that Jesus is the way, the truth, and our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Sorry, Father, we thank you for the ways in which you have proven yourself to be uh, all that you um, claim, a God of great love, a God of compassion and grace. And Lord, you have proven that to be the case in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see him as he claims himself to be our God, to be the way, to be the truth, to be our life. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to rest in that. Help us to see Jesus rightly, 
And may we leave all other things behind in order that we might experience that new life in profound ways. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.